Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. This is a Virgin Media Originals podcast series. Hello and welcome to The Tonight Show. Vaccine rollout faces backlash as TDs and GPs voice frustration over delays. Is it time to follow other EU countries and look for additional supplies elsewhere? On our first panel tonight, we're joined by Fianna Fáil's Willie O'Dea and Intu's Patrick Tobin. Plus, are current Garda resources and powers enough to police the pandemic? Former Assistant Garda Commissioner Pat Leahy joins us. And the Royal Rift continues. Meghan Markle calls out Buckingham Palace in this explosive clip from Oprah Winfrey's upcoming interview. I don't know how they could expect that after all of this time, we would still just be silent if there is an active role that the firm is playing in perpetuating falsehoods about us. And has the controversy surrounding racehorse trainer Gordon Elliott spiralled out of control? And do we need to reassess funding for the horse racing industry in Ireland? Get in touch via Twitter with the hashtag TonightVMTV. Well, we're joined first this evening by Fianna Fáil's Willie O'Dea and by Padder Tobin of Entu and via Skype by Dr Dennis McCauley, Chair of the GP Committee of the Irish Medical Organisation. And I'll start with you, Dennis, because there seems to be mounting frustration, even anger, amongst the over-85s and their families that not everybody has been vaccinated yet and amongst GPs that you haven't been getting the supplies as promised. What's your take on the situation? I think, Matt, if you look at it objectively, um, we had a, we had planned to give 72,000 people, the over 85s, their vaccination within a three-week period. Now, if you look at it from a numbers point point of view, we've actually achieved 70,000 of those 72,000. So, from a from an objective point of view, it has been a great success. There's no actual doubt about this, but it hasn't come without its pros, its uh, frustrations in that. I think this is it's a three-week pro- program. On the third week, where there were um, 40,000 vaccines to be given to, uh, through 500 practices, the problem was that the actual communication to the GP were, were, and to the uh, the over 85s was the problem. Up until the beginning of the week, the GPs had to make do with a 48-hour warning as to to confirm that they were getting their vaccine. Uh, now that wasn't ideal, but it was okay. So this week there were 500 GPs who the the 48-hour rule was drifting a little bit. They were having to wait a day before they were getting the vaccine to be confirmed that the, their their vaccine can, could actually go ahead. So that was the vast majority of the frustration you were getting on actual Twitter. These were just GPs who were keen to go. They eventually got their vaccine, but it came with a very short warning scheme. So that that caused frustration. Now. 
during the week, because the drifting of the 48-hour rule was annoying, but uh, on top of that, there were um, logistical issues for about 20 practices where there were 20 practices that didn't get the vaccine that they were hoping to get. Now, that's 20 out of 1,400 practices. So once again, that's a tiny, small number when you look at it from a numbers point of view. But if you have an over 85 who's been um, um, cocooning for nine months, was waiting for their vaccine, got word their vaccine was going to uh, occur today and said, no, I'm sorry, we have to cancel it today. You have to wait two more weeks. That's an optic that isn't good. And it isn't, this is this, this is a highly vulnerable group. They're a fragile physically, but perhaps even um, emotionally as well. So overall, it's been an excellent uh, logistical success. Communication this week was frayed, caused frustration, but ultimately 98% of all over 85s have been vaccinated, okay. but it's okay. just there were, but there were just cracks that were appearing this week. That if that was to continue into the future, that could be that that could be very very. Well, difficult. I'll come back to you on that in a moment because as you were saying all that, you were looking very sceptical, Patter Tavine, about those numbers quoted by Dennis. Yeah, I'd ha the, the information that I'm receiving is, is quite different to that. So if you look first of all uh, about the equivalent population of Wicklow has been fully inoculated in this country. So 3% of the population has been fully inoculated, uh, which is, in comparison to the North and Britain, et cetera, is extremely low. Um, if, you, if you look at the, let's say, the goals that Stephen Donnelly made for himself, he said that everybody in nursing homes would be inoculated by the end of um, uh, January. They were still vaccinating people in nursing homes at the end of February. He stated that within three weeks, we would complete the over 85s. Now, I spoke to a doctor today who's not going to get his uh, first uh, dose of vaccines for the over 85s until St. Patrick's Day. Um, and indeed, we know that between last week and this week, there has been a reduction of 25,000 vaccines to be administered, as opposed to the, the goal that they had set but themselves. Are you hearing perhaps of the hard cases? Because Dan Spicoli has just told us 98% of the job is done for the over 85s. The, the information that we're receiving is that about 200 uh, GPs around the country haven't actually received uh, the, vac the vaccines for their, uh, their, for their cohorts. And also, there's a, there's a little bit of a faulty towers element to this as well. There's, there's uh, doctors getting the vaccine but not getting the needles. There's, there's reports in Connemara of doctors driving around Connemara looking for needles so that they can actually get the vaccines out. It's this Let me put that to Dennis McCauley. Are you aware of that, of vaccines oh, arriving yeah. without the necessary needles? Indeed, yeah. Um, I am, and there's what the needles, the vaccines arrive, and then there's a worry about the needles, and the needles arrive sort of four or five hours later. Yes, but I must pick up this. To my knowledge, there are 65 practices that have not not been able to engage in the system that, that we had run, which is that we wanted a smaller practice under who have under 200 uh, over 70s to buddy up with a, an, a bigger practice or indeed to go into the hub. But it's actually 65 practices out of 1,300. So 200 is not a metric that I understand. And actually, we are comfortable that the figure of 70,000 out of 72 is a real figure. I'm, I'm, I'm not here to defend. I'm just here to report what we have of the, the numbers that we have been given. We're, we're actually chatting about there could be practices that will be delivered today that will give their vaccine on Monday, but they still have, have their vaccine today. I, I think 
I'm, I'm very conscious that there's two other, there's three other age, age cohorts, the 80s, and we will the 70s. Get, we'll get to that in a second, Dennis, but, but I, 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 want, I want to go to Willie O'Dea here in the studio, Dennis. Uh, Willie, what Stephen Donnelly today was going on about the AstraZeneca vaccine not turning up in anywhere near the numbers expected. But how does that then account for any shortfall in the numbers vaccinated, given that the AstraZeneca isn't been given to the over 70s? Because there are more than the over 70s been vaccinated, they're still finishing off <clears throat> some of the frontline workers and some of the healthcare workers. Um, the, the, I, I, the, the shortfall is, as I understand it, the shortfall in over 85s is about 1,500. And as Dr. McCauley says, 1,500 out of 72,000 isn't bad. Granted, granted, it didn't meet the target. And I think I agree with Pather in relation to the logistical problems. I've had complaints from my constituents. For example, as late as today, uh, there was a, a gentleman onto me on behalf of his parents, or both age 90. They haven't got the vaccine. Uh, even though somebody living down the road who is about seven or eight years younger actually has got the vaccine. The reason being, of course, they're dealing with different GPs. So it's kind of a postcode lottery. That's not acceptable. We, we, we all know and the situation. And it's your minister, Stephen Donnelly, who is ultimately it's, responsible. So it's, what's it's, he telling you about it's the these H shortcomings? It's the HSE that administers this match. You know, I mean, like, if, if, if somebody in the HSE, you know, sanctions the sending out of vaccines without the equipment to administer those vaccines, that's hardly the personal responsibility of Stephen Donnelly. I mean, there are glitches in the system. I know, I know from talking to Stephen and his uh, two junior ministers, I know that they're extremely worried about the situation, about these logistical problems, and they're moving to sort them out. For example, for example, uh, I was, I must say, flabbergasted to find out that only today that there's a central contact point, a central telephone uh, access for doctors who are GPs who have problems. Apparently, the system that worked up to now was, you know, emails, sending in, sending in emails and getting a lot of automated email replies. I'm a bit, I, I was taken aback at that because I think that's something that should have been there from the beginning. But, Willie, but the important thing is, the important thing is, I think, that the vast majority of people that, we, that the government set out to vaccinate have been vaccinated. The overwhelming majority Potter, have been vaccinated. Like, there are logistical honest, problems and we are walking through them. The, like, the, the context of this is that Ireland has had the longest and most severe lockdown mm. period of any country in Europe. According yes. to Reuters, 160 days of workplace stoppages. In mm. comparison to Germany, about 35 in that mm. same period. Now, the vaccine was in the country for four weeks before it actually, well, three weeks, apologies, before it actually made it into uh, the nursing homes. So the, the first vaccine was only administered in a nursing home in the, at the end of the second week uh, in January. At that, at that time, only 10% of the 77,000 vaccines were delivered in nursing homes. From the start to finish, uh, Stephen Donnelly has missed all the objectives that he said that he set for himself. And it's not that we only have started to prepare for this process um, at the start of January. We knew that we're getting vaccines in, in November and December. Preparations could easily be made for them. And yet, Dara Cleary, at your own parliamentary party meeting, said that information is only coming to doctors and how to deal with older people who are uh, homebound. Um, it's just, it, it is incredible to think that the management of this has been so poor and that the cost is so severe in the country because every month that we are further locked down is 
a cost of billions of euros and massive damage to people with regards to health, with regards to society and with regards to the economy. Patrick, there's no need to tell me about that. I know all this. We, 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 we all know this. You mentioned the English system, what's happening in, in England and the UK, but as you very well know, they're oper operating under a different regime to this country. Uh, this country is governed by the Brussels regime at the no, moment. No, it's whether not. We should it's go not about it, whether we should go outside it, we have the right to go outside it, yes. We have the right to go outside it, but basically we are under the Brussels regime. The fact of the matter, Pedro, I didn't interrupt you now, just a minute, just a minute. The fact of the matter is that the vast majority of people, the minister at the government or, or the HSE set out to, va to, to vaccinate, have been vaccinated. That's the reality. There has been a slow start. I grant that. I also grant the fact that there have been logistical problems, there have been operational problems. My heart goes out to elderly people who are waiting, who've been literally locked on for a year and are waiting to get their vaccine and been told at the last minute, no, sorry, the vaccine wasn't delivered, etc. I, I acknowledge okay. that. I acknowledge that. I briefly come in there. I absolutely acknowledge yeah, that. That pattern back I, is see, 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 Willie, I, you know, in January, I asked the minister, mm. why won't he uh, procure vaccines additional to the European supply chain outside of, of that? And he refused to do it. I put in a PQ 10 days ago. I got an answer yesterday from the minister to say no efforts have been made by this government to date, to procure vaccines outside of the European supply chain. Now, if, if the, the idea that Germany, Austria, Hungary, and other countries can do it without causing any problems Pada, in Europe, it is. No, can I ask Pada, you? Hungary, why happened the government? Why happened the government? Hungary is the only country that's currently doing that. Hungary no, Denmark, and, Denmark. and the supply and the supply that Hungary is getting uh, isn't 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 exactly. Well, that, that is no, not that, true. That, Denmark, that is, Denmark is procuring. And... Uh, Austria are doing a deal with Israel yes. for production they are doing, they, Yeah, they are in the process of doing a deal. They haven't started that. Pro they, 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 haven't got has... any, they haven't got in any vaccines as a result of that. They are doing a deal. That possibility is open to us. Of course it is. Yeah, but have we started actually doing anything no, about no, it? We, no, we haven't, because, because, because um, uh, there has been a shortfall, certainly from one of the companies we're dealing with. There's been a 25,000 shortfall from AstraZeneca. Uh, that's not the government's fault. That's not the country's fault. Th th there was a shortfall in supply, and you can only supply, you can only give out what, you, what, you, what, you, what supply to you. Uh, now, all the, indications, it, all the indications are that we'll be able to ramp this, that we will meet the 100,000 a week target for March, that we'll be able to ramp it up to 200 to 300,000 a week for April, and then you're at, into the process of that. Okay, well, let me ask Dennis McCauley about that. As a GP, would you be confident, given what you're seeing is happening in relation to distribution of the drugs when they get to Ireland and getting the supplies of the vaccines into Ireland, that we will hit the 100,000 a week target in March and double it again in April? Just to, to go back, the, the issue that's delaying everything now is just the supply. Um, as soon as the supply comes in, it's actually given out almost immediately. The, we're chatting about having the um, the actual infrastructure. We have the infrastructure in place for the over for the over seventy the over seventies. That's without a doubt, and I have no I have no issue issue there. The next stage, which is the giving now, which we believe is to the AstraZeneca to the all the other at at risk groups and so forth. That plan has to be evolved. There is going to be vaccine given by general practitioners, pharmacists in the vaccination centre and indeed some in the in the hospital. That has to be worked out. And I think that once again, if it is if there's good planning for it, I think we can achieve it. But the planning has to be good. The planning and the actual communi um, communication to the to the actual Dennis, people who is this planning not well. actually done. We have known since late last year that the vaccines would be arriving. Surely in early March the logistical 
workout of how these will be administered would be in place. I actually think they have, but the, but the problem is it was only the NIAC only recommended there was a there was a recommendation by NIAC with regards to the risk and that and that risk groups only last week. There was confusion as to whether we were going to be giving mRNA vaccines to a subgroup of that, or we're just going to use AstraZeneca totally for the short term for the next month. They have clarified that today, and that allows Plan B to be used rather than Plan A. So there are there was planning available, but actually rolling out the plan depending on 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 the vaccine choice that has been clarified today. Now we have to rule that out and it will okay, be... Dr. Dennis McCauley, I'm sorry, we do have another guest I need to get in who's waiting in Brussels for us. Thank you very much, Dennis McCauley. We are joined now by the Europe correspondent with Euronews, Shona Murray, because Shona, I believe a bold move by Italy today, that was supported by the European Commission, blocking a quarter of a million AstraZeneca vaccines going to Australia. So is this the start of some sort of vaccine nationalism? Well, I don't know about that because um, well, this is a move by uh, Mario Draghi, the new prime minister of Italy. But prior to that, um, all of the exports of vaccines coming from the EU have actually just gone. This is the first time that it's been blocked. So um, vaccines going from Belgium to Canada and the UK, for example, have all continued. Um, the reason Mario Draghi gave today was that he said that Australia is not a vulnerable country. Um, the vast majority of Australia's vaccines are going to be produced in Melbourne. So it was a short short supply, 250,000. And his point was that Italy is a much more vulnerable country and that AstraZeneca, as Ulidi said there, had sort of um, failed to fulfil its obligations under the contract. So that's the reason why he did this. OK, briefly moving on to the latest post-Brexit development. And clearly the Irish government is absolutely furious at the decision by Boris Johnson's government to unilaterally extend one of the provisions of uh, the pro protocol in Northern Ireland as part of the Brexit deal. What's the view in Brussels amongst the European Union? What action is likely to be taken? Well, huge disappointment because there actually had been a, a small level of optimism that the two sides could actually work together in a, in a progressive way. And that, you know, the discussions around extending the grace periods were already underway and were due to be decided alongside the EU, ensuring that the UK fulfilled its obligations under the protocol. Um, so the fact that the UK did this on a unilateral level was un is deemed unnecessary and uh, aggressive. Um, there are a few um, routes that the EU can take now. Obviously, there are legal routes. Um, in particular, there's an arbitration panel within the withdrawal agreement which will rule and then offer a remedy. Um, there's also a legal process that you know, essentially would be a legal letter to the UK giving them 30 days to respond, similar to what action was taken when they implemented or published the, the Internal Markets Bill. But I don't think anyone really wants to go down that route because they prefer to try to work in harmony with the UK um, but at the same time, they can't stand idly by and let the UK breach the protocol um, that it had negotiated. Okay. And the reason why there are so many checks, obviously, is because the Brexit is quite hard. But I think just one point there, uh, Matt, you know, the, the, the actual deal itself is now under threat because the European Parliament had said if the UK breaches the protocol, then it won't um, validate the protocol. And the European Parliament has to vote for this protocol, otherwise it becomes invalidated. And so that has, the no deal territory is back upon us again. Thank you very much, Shona Murray. Also to Padder Tobin for having been with us. Willie O'Day will be, Willie O'Day will be staying with us after the break. And we'll be asking if the Gardaí have the resources and powers to police the pandemic. And as Ryanair announces eight new services out of Belfast Airport, how can we prevent cross-border holiday makers hopping on those flights?
Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Welcome back. Now, Fianna Fáil's Willie O'Dea has stayed with us. We're also joined by Irish independent columnist and barrister Colette Brown and via Skype by the former Assistant Garda Commissioner, Pat Leahy. And Pat, I could start with you. We obviously saw what happened in Dublin last weekend. There's speculation about marches in Cork this weekend. And indeed, there's some worries about St. Patrick's Day when some so-called patriots might use the opportunity to cause a bit of trouble. So what can the, the Gardaí do about this? Well, Matt, I think we have to look back and have a look at all of the protests that have taken place uh, during the pandemic. And there have been quite a few when the guards have dealt with them really, really well. And I expect that the guards will be prepared for whatever comes. Now, I think what happened over the last week will have some bearing on it. And I think what has happened since with the arrests and the actual charges that have been preferred against people will have an effect also. Because if people think that they can come to a protest with fireworks, etc., you know, the charges that accompany that when you're caught are explosives charges. So your chances of travelling internationally after that are uh, quite damaged. So I think people need to be uh, aware of this. But I think uh, having gone through that now and with the publicity that it's gotten in terms of the people that have been arrested and the speed with which the Gardaí acted post-event, I think people might uh, think twice about it. But whether they do or they don't, I think the guards will be well set up and well ready for whatever comes. But does that mean using anti-riot mean... squads? Does it mean perhaps being a bit more proactive in breaking up groups as they assemble rather than letting them do so? I wish it was that easy, but it's not, Matt. I mean, look, the, what, what you refer to as the anti-riot squad is our public order unit. And they have several phases that they use before they engage as, we say, a riot squad, so to speak, what it used to be called in the past. And they'll adopt a graduated response. They're highly trained, but you don't want to provoke a response from the public either. And we have to assume that all of the people that turn up for protests are not there to commit violence or engage with Garda Síochána. Because, look, we've been through 12 months of a pandemic. We've had uh, quite a long uh, lockdown. Resilience is low with a lot of people. There's a lot of fatigue after setting in. And the guards have to be conscious of that. So the guards will uh, turn up on the day and they'll communicate clearly to the people by the way they're dressed and the way they're behaving that they do not want to engage in the use of force. However, they'll equally communicate that they have the public order unit on standby if it's required. 
Colette Brown, we have five kilometer rules. There are rules against uh, assembly, but is there a danger that perhaps we're getting too tough on those who genuinely feel that they have a constitutional right to protest, particularly against the stringency of the lockdown? Now look, I think it'd be very dangerous if guards just started arresting people for the very act of protesting. I mean, we live in a democracy after all. They're, these are very stringent rules that have been introduced. They have the vast majority of public support, it, sh it should be said, but there are certain people who don't agree with the restriction and they want to go out and protest. The, the majority of those protesters were peaceful. There was a violent minority at the Dublin protest that engaged in, you know, desperate, despicable behaviour and the guards were well able to deal with that on the day. <coughs> so um, I, I, I'd agree Pat, I think you don't want to provoke a public response from people but, who but maybe are genuinely of um, people engaged assembling in together. Isn't that an issue that needs to be stopped? Because there are fears that we've seen internationally and perhaps here in Ireland previously that those are so-called super spreader events potentially. Yeah, it, indeed. The, the, the only benefit, I suppose, is that these events are happening outdoors and that's the safest place where, where people can assemble together. Now, I know people are probably watching and going, well, listen, I can't go five kilometres down the door without being stopped by a guard in a checkpoint and ask, asked where I'm going. And, you know, obviously these are very very ser serious restrictions. The whole purpose of them is to, st is to stop the spread of the, di the disease. But I think if the guards engaged in a more heavy-handed action with protests that were happening, and there's only a small number of protests that, that have happened, they haven't been attended by you know a whole lot of people ultimately, then I think it might provoke a wider response and maybe even encourage more people to come out onto the streets. Of course, Willie, it's not just protests. It's the house parties, most famously the one in Limerick over the weekend. I mean, what do the Guardian need to do in relation to these type of events? What should happen to those who are involved, like the students? Should they be suspended or expelled from University of Limerick? Well, it, it wasn't a house party. It was a public party uh, in a housing estate. Um, look, basically a number of people have been identified and they've got fixed penalty charges. Other people are being charged. One person, as far as I know, uh, as of today, has been charged with the possession and supply of drugs. You see, it's not just it's not just students we're talking about here. I mean, basically, uh, a lot of the accommodation in that particular estate is student accommodation. You have a number of residents as well. But it has become a sort of focal point uh, for a small group of students, people from all over town and drug dealers, drug dealers, just buying and selling drugs taking place there literally openly. And... Um, you know, it's 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 caused great concern, not only amongst the local residents, but amongst the community at large. Because the campus, the UL campus, is right in the centre of a place called Limerick City East. That's the electoral area. The COVID incidence in Limerick City East is twice the national average. We have a situation down there now whereby people are afraid to go to local shops, local supermarkets, etc., in case the virus has spread as a result of the activities we saw during the week. Now. The law obviously will take its course, and I'm not going to, for people who are being brought before the courts, I'm not going to prescribe to any judge what sentence he or she should hand down. Now, there is, on the other hand, in addition to that, there is a code of conduct uh, which people sign, which students sign, university code of conduct, which students sign that they're going to behave in a certain manner. I haven't read the code of conduct, I have to confess, and I haven't, I, I'm not quite sure what the penalties are, but I have, I have some doubts as to whether uh, the, the, the very severe penalties can be applied. I'm just looking at what's been applied already in relation to, say, Galway University, who have a code of conduct. People are being asked to write 2,000-word essays and uh, they're asked, being asked to pay fines and pay into the college fund for disadvantaged students, etc. I know for a fact, I know for a fact, that in the past, in UL anyway, and I'm sure it probably applies generally, that when those fines have been imposed, 
the university find it possible, practically impossible to, to, to collect them well, unless I, people are prepared to volunteer them over. The HSE has mentioned that there was an outbreak of COVID-19 among students in the West, presumably Galway, 442 further cases as a result of this in over 200 separate households as a result. So how are we going to be able to deal with the potential as the weather gets better and a sizable minority of people want to break out of the restrictions that we will have more of these type of events? And I think that's the $1 billion question, Matt, and if you can answer that question, you'd be a rich man because governments all over the world would want the answer to, uh, answer to it. Um, look... I suppose it's it's a matter of trying to convince people that you know they have to behave in a certain way in order in order to limit the spread of the virus. And I do have a certain level of sympathy for students. I have to say, you know, people in their late teens, early twenties, you know, formative years where you go out, you know, you have fun, you form friendships, you build relationships with people that last you for for, for the rest of your life, and that's been taken away from 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 these people at the moment. So listen. The, the majority of students are behaving well, they're abiding by rules and they're acting in a conscientious manner. This is a small minority. And I would say again, that the only positive I think from what happened in Limerick, there wasn't many positives at all, but that the party was outside, even though the neighbours may not have appreciated that. Well, if I can go back to you, Pat Lee, I mean, how will the Guardian manage this whole thing of wanting to do community policing, remaining on good terms with the public, when they've been required to do more and more things from checkpoints on the roads to policing any of these parties? Well, now, Garda Shikana have to be aware, and the individual guards themselves have to be aware of the context and the environment and how it has changed over the last 12 months. I mean, if we take, for example, Matt, there's been over 50 statutory instruments introduced during the pandemic. Now, some of those were introducing them, some were amending them, etc., and appealing them. But, I mean, the legal landscape has changed for everybody, and it's gone on for such a, a long time. Now, the guards, they adopted the 40s uh, starting out, they seem to be uh, progressing a little bit quicker now to the enforcement uh, aspect of that, and rightly so, because the context has changed and the danger for the public has been enhanced somewhat. But we still have to be aware that we're enforcing legislation in the country now against people for leaving their homes you know, without a reasonable excuse. I mean, it is so draconian that we have to be so, so sensitive to how it is uh, enforced. And you can see by the figures, between April and December of 2020, there was just over 900 enforcement actions by Angarda Shikana. But in the last two and a half months, there's been 6,000. So there has been an increase in enforcement, and rightly so, because the context and the environment required that to take place. Pat, but you still have to be really, Pat, really careful about how you proceed. Is it also the case, though, Pat, that just like the healthcare workers had to be vaccinated quickly, that if the Gardaí are dealing with all this, that the Gardaí should be moved up the vaccination queue? Well, look, certainly from the word go, that was something that should have been considered. I've no doubt about that. Um, some of the, the, the reasons for that that were given over the last was that they're out on checkpoints and they're engaging with people. But I think that misses the point because where they're really coming into contact with people are at the protests, as we saw last weekend. But in everyday policing, they're, they're still out doing searches every day. They're inside in people's homes and bedrooms and that, turning stuff over, looking for drugs, looking for other things. They're making arrests. They're sitting in interview rooms for hours with people. So they are being exposed and they need to be considered as real frontline staff and the dangers. And we've seen that in the first lockdown, I think we were operating at about 94% resilience. But in the second one, we were down to 87%. So they were really being affected by it. People were, were you know, succumbing to the disease. Well, let me go to you as a former Minister for Justice, William D. Do you think the Gardaí should be moved up the vaccination queue? Well, 
Look, the government depends on advice from NIAC as to, as to, as to the actual layout of the vaccination queue. Now, as you know, there's been a change in the system in the last couple of days. People who are suffering from serious underlying conditions have been moved up. Uh, up to the next category, they are going to they are going to start on them next week. There are equally other uh, sections of society, such as the police, as has been said, teachers who are coming into pupils on a constant basis, carers, etc. Uh, th th there's there's a number of lobbies to move up the queue. Now the the problem is, when you move somebody up the queue, then somebody else falls further back down the queue. So it's a difficult decision, but I think the government will be guided by NIAC on this. Okay, Colette Brown, we also heard today that Ryanair is now launching eight new services out of Belfast this summer. Can you see the Guardian being left in a position where they might have to police the border to stop people making a break for Belfast <laughs> to try and get out of the country on holiday? <laughs> I, I think so. Well, um, you know, um, technically they're, they're already supposed to be doing that at the moment because they're supposed to be enforcing the five kilometre rule at, in checkpoints all, all over the country, including near the border. But I think that that is going to be a difficult thing for the Guardian to keep policing as, you know, we get closer to the summer and people do want to don't want to break from, um, from this island. Um, week on week, we've seen the numbers of people who are going on holiday from Dublin indeed has been ha, has been increasing um, the government hasn't found a way to kind of convince people to to, 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 to remain put so I think with, with these extra flights being uh, being launched by Ryanair from Belfast I mean it's going to be an obvious lure for, to people to, to head off. I just go to you for the last word on this Pat we keep comparing ourselves here in Ireland to what's happening with vaccinations in other countries but how well do you think are we doing in, in regard to policing protest compared to Europe? I think we have to take it again in context. When we compare the protests that we're dealing with here to what's been happening across mainland Europe, there is no comparison, Matt. That's the reality of it. I mean, in Europe, they'd be looking at what happened here last weekend as handbags. And that's the reality. Despite the fact that uh, Gardaí were injured in that, the actual engagement is low level. And we have to keep that in mind. And uh, the guards can't be pressured into reacting in a particular way, whether it's what's going on in the media or how it's been discussed. They need to put it in context. What happened uh, was unsavoury and nobody wants to see it and we want to protect society, we want to protect our members of Garda Shikana, but at the end of the day, it was low level enough. Handbags, we remember Handbags. that word. Thank you very much, Pat Leahy. We leave it there. Thanks to Willie O'Dea, Colette Brown and Pat Leahy for joining us. After the break, has the controversy surrounding racehorse trainer Gordon Elliott gone too far? And... Former BBC Royal correspondent Jenny Bond on the explosive Meghan Markle clip everyone's talking about and what we can expect from Oprah Winfrey's exclusive interview with the Royal Couple. I'm just really relieved and happy to be sitting here talking to you with my wife by my side because I can't begin to imagine what it must have been like for her going through this process by herself all those years ago because it has been unbelievably tough for the two of us, but at least we had each other. Welcome back. Well, the British royal saga continues. This bombshell clip from Oprah Winfrey's upcoming interview with Meghan Markle and Prince Harry has been taking the internet by storm. How do you feel about the palace hearing you speak your truth today? I don't know how they could expect 
that after all of this time, we would still just be silent if there is an active role that the firm is playing in perpetuating falsehoods about us. And if that comes with risk of losing things, I mean, I've, there's a lot that's been lost already. Well, we're joined now by former BBC royal correspondent Jenny Bond. Jenny, perpetuating falsehoods. It doesn't appear like Meghan will be holding back in this interview. How fearful do you think Buckingham Palace is that this may be the ultimate whistleblower, a factual version of the Crown? Well, I think they obviously are concerned. Um, they're saying that they're focused on, on the health of the Duke of Edinburgh and other matters, really. But clearly, they are concerned about this. It was a bombshell clip, as you say. I mean, uh, perpetuating falsehoods. I mean, basically, she's saying the firm, and she calls them the firm, and by the firm, uh, we all understand the palace machinery. But at the core of that machinery, the firm means the senior members of the royal family. Uh, they are perpetuating falsehoods. All right, let's let's say it as it is. She, she's calling them liars, basically. She's saying the royal family are actively, actively promoting lies about her. It's one heck of an accusation. And doesn't that seem to be the case even this week? Suddenly trundling out accusations that she was bullying staff in 2018, things about earrings that came from dodgy sources. Doesn't this look like they're getting their revenge in before she says anything? Well, the earring story that, that shouldn't be given those by um, the leader of Saudi Arabia, um, I mean, that was the press drumming that up, I think. Um, the allegations about bullying are far, far more serious, and, and they are coming from former members of her staff who've come forward to um, a, a reputed newspaper, to a well-known journalist over here, and said that they don't want to be silent any more than Meghan wants to be silent. I think it was a preemptive strike by them. And yes, it must have been authorised by the palace um, that they should speak out. Um, but these are terrifically serious allegations. There's a lot of questions here. I mean, there's a lot of questions about when these allegations were first raised uh, with uh, the Sussex's uh, communications secretary, Jason Knulf, um, back in 2018. They were raised in an email that's now being published. Well, why wasn't that taken further? Here, it seems to me that the palace are at fault. Um, but if indeed they were proved to be true and that, that Meghan did force out at least two members of her staff, and tonight there are suggestions that there are about 10 members of staff willing to come forward and confidentially, and confidentially give their point of view. Um, if she was a bully, then these have to be investigated, which is what the Queen has ordered should happen now. But we do remember all the sort of nonsense that there was about opening the door of our car for herself. And could it be that the large part of, despite the fact that maybe the British public warmed to her marrying Harry at the time and there was a big celebration at the wedding, that the British establishment and elite really have always looked down their noses at her, that there's elements of class and race in this. They didn't regard her as posh enough and they didn't like the fact that a member of the British royal family was marrying a woman of colour. I don't think those suggestions are true. I do think she was perhaps um, a difficult fit in the royal family in that she was uh, mature, she is a mature woman um, of very independent views, um, an outspoken feminist, a, a campaigner, someone who liked to put her point of view across. And I don't think she was prepared for what being a member of the royal family does rather unfortunately mean, which is you... Um, well, you don't explain and you don't complain and you don't talk about any issues that are controversial. I mean, basically, you have to watch your 
watch your step and watch your words all the way. And I don't think she was ready for that kind of lifestyle. But she was welcomed into the royal family. She really was. And she was welcomed by the British public and press. And the press are going to get a right bashing um, in, in this interview, perhaps with some justification. Sometimes it was toxic. It did turn toxic. But at the beginning, you might remember, it was the, it was the Markle sparkle. We all loved her. Uh, and I, for one, am very, very sorry that it went wrong because I think she would have been the most uh, enormous asset to a modern monarchy. Thank you very much for joining us here on The Tonight Show. Let's move on. And racehorse trainer Gordon Elliott is facing a hearing tomorrow with the Irish Horse Racing Regulatory Board. But has this controversy surrounding him and the photograph of him sitting astride a dead horse spiralled out of control? And is it time we reassess the level of government funding now going into the horse racing industry? We're joined now by horse racing journalist and breeder Kevin Blake and in studio by Sinn Féin's Matt Carty. But Kevin, can I start with you? What can we expect out of tomorrow's hearing for Gordon Elliott? Hi, Matt. Um, it's very hard to know what to expect. Um, look, as has been well discussed at this point, you know, Gordon did wrong and he will be punished. Um, there's very little in the way of precedent for this type of case. It's very much open-ended as to what punishment might be given. Um, you know, if we wish to speculate, a suspension of his licence of, of one period or another it seems likely, but is not a certainty. Um, so, you know, we're flying a small bit blind. We've never seen a case like this before in racing, and um, it, we'll have to wait until tomorrow to find out. Hasn't he been effectively nobbled already, though, by sponsors giving up, certain owners moving horses out of the yard? The British horse racing authorities effectively preempting what the Irish were doing by suspending him in advance. He's been very heavily punished already, Matt. And like you say, what the BHA did um, is unprecedented. And it very much forced the hand of many of Gordon's owners that were sort of sitting on the fence and waiting to see how the disciplinary process panned out. And like you say, he, he's lost his yard sponsor. He's lost you know, lucrative ambassador deals. And probably mo most painful of all, he's lost some of the most exciting horses in training that he had to watch leaving his yard. Um, and you, you just, you know, when you're in the game and... You, you know, everyone spends their life trying to come across horses like Envoyala and, and others, and for them to, to, for him to have to watch them getting on a lorry to, to leave the yard, um, never to return, that, that would be absolutely heartbreaking for him and for his staff. Matt Carty, repulsive as the photographs were, is there a danger that the punishment here could be disproportionate to the offence caused? I've no idea what the punishment will be. I agree with Kevin that you know, there's already a big price has been paid, undoubtedly. And um, this will have cost uh, cost Gordon Elliott hundreds of thousands, if not millions, of of euro. Um, so who knows what will emerge from tomorrow? I think there's a little bit of pontificating because this was um, a, vis a visual image. So much that happens relating to horses happens behind the scenes, and um, with very little scrutiny. That this is giving us a window to the type of way that the animals are treated in the industry? No, I, I have to say my firm belief is that within the horse racing sector, the vast majority of animals are treated incredibly well. I think most owners and trainers um, are very careful to adhere to the regulations. My fear is that there could be um, some um, discrepancies within that because I'm not convinced that there are enough um, monitoring and enforcement procedures in place that would allow everybody to have the 
the, I suppose, the comfort of knowing um, that those regulations that are in place are actually being enforced. You want the Agriculture Minister, Charlie McConnell Logue, to appear before a committee over funding to the industry. Why so? Well, I think, I think this is um, allowing us an opportunity to have a very important debate. And we've tried to have this, and usually it happens in the mouth of Christmas when funding is announced. So this year, for example, um, the government announced €10 million Euro in additional funding to, the, to horse racing in Ireland. That's a substantial amount Bringing of money. Bringing it up to 77 million. million. Yeah, so it's, it's a huge amount of money. And it's coming from the Department of Agriculture. And there's lots of sectors within the agriculture sector that desperately need funding and didn't, didn't get it. Um, so my position has always been, I'm a supporter of the horse racing sector. I think it is, um, uh, plays an invaluable role within our local economy. But I have an, a two particular issues. One with regard to the fact that the money that is handed over doesn't have many at um, conditions attached. And the Department of Agriculture, better than any department, can attach conditions to funding it, it, it allocates. And I think one of those conditions should be in relation to increased um, enforcement of, the, of animal welfare regulations. But the second issue I have, and this is just as important, Horse Racing Ireland invests that money largely through prize funds. Um, and my fear is, and the evidence points, that that is leading to a concentration of the wealth within the sector. So rather than actually promoting the development of the sector, it's actually concentrating that within a very small number of trainers and owners. Kevin, what do you make of that criticism, that the money is not spread fairly? Uh, well, look, it's an interesting point. And look, when one looks at the distribution of the prize money, Matt is right. One would naturally have fears that the majority of it goes to a relatively small number of hands. But you have to go a little bit deeper than that. Um, prize money, I think it's fair to describe as the lifeblood of the racing industry because it drives investment uh, in so many other areas. Just because Willie Mullins ends up winning a, a large proportion of the prize money, it doesn't mean that it's going straight into his pocket. You know, you look at Willie Mullins' results, you look at the horses that he wins with, a lot of those horses are bought from, they didn't start with Willie Mullins, they started off with smaller trainers um, in point-to-points with, um, with lower profile trainers. Once they show promise, because Irish prize money is so competitive internationally, it attracts some very, very wealthy owners, and they are in a position to come in and give these smaller operators extremely good prices for their stock. And Willie Mullins and you know most of the big trainers, um, they may be tra training all the winners, but they would employ a wide array of service providers, uh, pre-trainers is what we'd call them. Kevin. Smaller trainers that, that, that do the, the, air, the foundation work with the horses before they go to Willie. So while Willie might be getting the glory, that doesn't mean the money isn't getting spread around. But Kevin, there would be a lot of people who'd wonder why it is the state should be spending this money at all. Yet I understand you believe the sum of money should be even bigger. Why would you argue that? Well, Matt is dead right. You know, public funds should always be scrutinised. There, there's great uh, cause for funds all over the country. But look, the facts of the matter are, Matt, is the money that the Irish government puts into the Irish racing industry is an incredibly good investment. And Deloitte did, did a wide-ranging study uh, in 2017 that assessed the economic impact um, of the Irish horse racing industry on uh, the Irish economy. And they concluded that for every euro that the Irish government puts into the Irish racing industry in the form of funding, they get a 33 euro euro return on that. You know, that, that's a 3,000% return on investment. It, Matt, if a multinational came to the IDA and said, we want 75 million in support every year, we will deliver you a 3,000% return on investment, 30,000 rural jobs, 2 billion in economic activity generated, environmentally friendly, 
you wouldn't even have to finish okay, the pitch and they'd be throwing the money at you. If Sinn Féin was in power after the next election, would you continue the funding of this industry, given that a good chunk of the money comes from the betting levy anyway? Yes, um, we would fund the horse racing industry because Kevin is right that we, um, it does bring a benefit to the rural economy. We would, however, insist on greater transparency and greater, trans uh, greater accountability in terms of how that money is spent. And we would because um, Kevin's right in terms of the economic output that we receive as a result of the horse racing um, sector. But lots of people within the sector are actually very low paid. And lots of the main investors, the people who drive that um, money, actually end up making a loss. So I do, do think it's a fair point to say the money that's allocated. So last year we allocated in around 67 million euro as taxpayers. We all invested that money into the horse racing sector. That's almost exactly the same amount of money that was distributed in prize money. Of that prize money, 60% of it went to the top 10 race, races. I think that's unfair. Okay, thank you. That is all we have time for tonight. Our thanks to Kevin Blake and to Matt Carty for joining us. I'll be back on Today FM tomorrow afternoon. Kira will be back here on Monday night at 10 o'clock. Until then, stay safe. Thanks for watching and enjoy a good weekend. This is a Virgin Media Originals podcast series.